You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the cost of decades of climate inaction and why a German industrial giant is paying the multi-billion dollar price. Is the era of the muscle car over? Is it possible to have an electric muscle car? And we'll consider the very wealthy who are also financially stressed and what that might mean for the economy. But we begin with UPS drivers. Labor action for the United Parcel Service workers helped drivers land new contracts, more benefits, even air conditioning in those familiar brown trucks. Teamsters Union President Sean O'Brien says the company was making a lot of money while the drivers kept those packages coming. They can set the tone on how it is to reward their employees who have made them the success that they are. I mean, they made $100 billion with a B, and our members deserve to reap those benefits as well. And in late July, they were able to strike a deal. But I think it's a great victory. Uh, for the labor movement in general. We actually took on corporate America and won. The end result, a deal for UPS drivers and a message for Fed Chair Jay Powell as policymakers weigh whether they've raised interest rates enough to bring inflation down to their 2% target. Want to bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen, the founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. Connor, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. What is the message that this labor deal has for Fed Chair Powell? So there's a lot of optimism that the slowdown we've seen in growth and inflation will lead to a return to 2% inflation, which is what the Fed wants. And if you look at some of the things that have normalized and haven't, worker pay in industries like truck driving and manufacturing and construction are still running well ahead of where they were in the 2010s. And so, and then you're seeing things like the UPS deal, the, the, the UAW is looking for a pretty aggressive deal as well. And while it's great news for those workers, they can get big pay increases. I'm skeptical that that's consistent with 2% inflation. Well, in fact, I wanted to get into that with you because you also mentioned that this is sort of pulling against a soft landing for the economy, this labor action. And it's not just UPS. There are a lot of labor actions ongoing. At first, I thought a rising tide would lift all boats. But your argument is that this is going to make it harder for the Fed. Right. And so right now, the reason we're seeing a lot of progress on inflation is over the past year, we've seen a lot of things like freight prices and energy prices, used car prices are coming down, rents are coming down. And so that's all really helpful. But that's all more like normalization last year and sort of supply chain improvements that we've seen. And that doesn't really address the underlying demand story, which is that we're still seeing robust pay increases for blue collar workers, which is arguably policy. And that's a good thing. But as those wage increases get absorbed, ultimately, it's going to start to compress margins again for companies, and they're going to be looking to pass that on in the form of higher prices. So the way you describe it, it sounds like this is sort of a cycle and that it's not going to just be resolved in the next few months. This sounds years long. Yeah, and I think we kind of all knew this was coming because we all know that truck drivers and construction workers and auto workers have been underpaid for a while. And we were wondering what would be the impetus to change that. And I think just the structural labor shortage for workers in those industries combined with policy to do things like, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and building out uh, sort of green energy transition. All of that is very labor intensive for the kinds of workers we don't have a lot of. And that's going to drive inflation over the next few years anyway. Now, in your column, you tell the story about how in 
2008, the union accepted a pay package that they weren't 100% in love with because they didn't want the company to fold. They wanted to protect the overall company and therefore the workers as well. But that's not necessarily the case these days. Help us square that circle. Tell us about that. Right. So 2008, the auto industry was on the verge of collapse. The government kind of stepped in to make sure that didn't happen. And unions, which understand you can't have your employer go out of business, said, we're going to take this not so great deal now to survive and we'll we'll get it back later. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't necessarily show up in the data where you now have union leaders and uh, union members with long memories. And they say, we took care of you guys in your time of crisis. Now it's our turn. You've got high profits. You need us. We know it's a great labor market. And we're not willing to accept that kind of subpar deal the way we were 15 years ago. Okay, so this isn't necessarily an entire shift in how they think or their ideology or philosophy. This is simply, hey, we scratched your back 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Now you can scratch ours. Exactly. And they have the the leverage to do it when the unemployment rate is three and a half percent. And if you're not working for a car company, you can go build out a factory or go be a driver or go work in construction. And we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Connor Sen about what the Fed can learn from the UPS labor talks and what it may mean uh, as the Fed tries to reach that 2% inflation rate goal. Um, Connor, how do you see these types of labor actions continuing? Because as we said, it's not just UPS. Right. And actually, the UPS one was interesting because on the after that headline came out that full-time UPS drivers will make in pay and benefits over the course of the deal, on average, $170,000. There was a 50% increase in the number of people applying to work for UPS. And so if you're applying to work for UPS, you're not applying to work for another company or another industry that's looking for those types of workers. And so sort of a win in one industry or one company can have ripple effects to other employers who are all competing for the same labor pool. There's also the flip side of that agreement, though. They also got the uh, promise that they could have air conditioning in those iconic brown trucks, those delivery vehicles. It seems like there's a flip side to that coin, that perhaps it's not really the sexiest job ever. Yeah, this is a very physically grueling job. I I personally wouldn't want to have to haul packages 10, 12 hours a day. And so by no means am I saying this is an unearned or unmerited pay increase. It's just that if you're looking for 2% inflation, this is making it difficult in the short term. And I think the goal is, or the hope, is that over coming years, things like productivity improvements, and UPS talked about sort of productivity and investments in their warehouses to, to automate things there, and just sort of paying benefits and job conditions getting to a place where they should have been all along will be enough where we can kind of reach a, an equilibrium that everyone's happy with, it's just that we're currently in the midst of an adjustment. That's exactly what I wanted to ask about. You you talk about bringing those wage uh, wages and wage growth back to acceptable levels. And my question for you is acceptable to whom? To everyone? Like they have to find this happy medium where every where it fits everybody, where the bed's not too soft and it's not too hard. It's just right. And that's sort of the, the dance of capitalism, right? Where right. you have, we, this is a job that needs to be done. We all want our, our package deliveries. But there's not a lot of people who want to do these jobs at the conditions and pay that they've been offered at. And so pay and benefits have to go up. That means shipping prices have to go up. And as Amazon consumers or anybody else, we have to be willing to accept that. And the company as well has to find a profit margin that works for them. 
And so this is just an adjustment period to figuring out what works for everybody. I'm still fascinated with the idea that there are more labor actions ongoing this year than we've seen in quite some time. Um, do you anticipate there being more because of those uh, oh, bringing the wage growth back to acceptable levels or whatever the X factor may be for that particular industry? Do you see these types of labor actions continuing beyond just the Teamsters and UPS and UAW? I tend to think so. And again, the unemployment rate is a big part of this because it shows that the labor market is tight. And there's also kind of it's a nebulous uh, expectations game where if you're the UAW and you see that the UPS Teamsters just won a great deal, you think we can too. And if you're looking to unionize or, or push for a bold deal at another company, other industry, you see these wins and you see that it's attainable. And so that does kind of shift the playing field in terms of who thinks they have the, the bargaining power in these negotiations. And now the really important part is whether the Fed is listening. Are they getting the message? It's interesting because in the short term, we do have softer inflation data because used car prices are coming down as auto production picks up and supply chains normalize. And shelter and rents are coming down as sort of the pandemic craziness goes away and things normalize. And so we have probably six to nine months where the inflation data is going to look pretty good. But the question is, again, on the other side of this, if UPS rates have to go up, if auto prices have to go up to account for these labor deals, Will that push inflation in the back half of 24? And it's going to be a while until we know. So it's this, this interesting time where you have arguably signs of hotter inflation in the future while the actual inflation data that we get is soft. It sounds like the way you're describing it is, again, as we mentioned before, this is going to take months, years, but that bringing wage growth back to acceptable levels where it's acceptable for all parties it's also going to have to take the Fed into consideration. Once that wage growth is balanced, then the Fed can find some balance too. Or am I oversimplifying it, reading too much into it? I think that's right. And you just can't get sort of 7% consistent wage growth in these types of industries and think that you're going to get to 2% inflation for the economy as a whole. And again, I think eventually, maybe you know the UAW gets their contract that they feel they've earned uh, for the past 15 years. And then in a couple of years, things kind of normalize. But right now, we still have that pretty tense upward wage pressure that's going to drive inflation. I, I don't want to ask about the pendulum swinging back the other way, because the whole point of this is not to swing the pendulum, but to find the balance. But the balance won't last forever. Like That's a temporary balance. But what are we talking in terms of years? How long will this last? Well, these union contracts typically, are, I think the UPS one is for four years. Mm -hmm. And so I would imagine this is going to be the big catch-up union contract. And it's pretty hard to see what things can look like four years from now, because things like spending in the Investment Reduction Inflation Reduction Act peak, I think, in 2026. And so it's possible that when we get to the next negotiation in 2027 or whenever, that things have normalized and we're not talking about this anymore. Just right now, I think there just shouldn't be any confidence that we've totally licked inflation because we still see these pretty intense wage pressures. Connorson is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist and founder of Peachtree Creek Investments. And coming up, a troubling climate omen. Problems with wind turbines that pretend a slower and more expensive energy transition. We're going to check it out just ahead. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. 
Just last month, President Biden toured a wind turbine factory in New Mexico to tout his economic agenda and new kinds of jobs under the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. Now they are tired of hearing me say this, but where is it written that America can't lead the world again in manufacturing because we're going to do just that, the leading manufacturer in the world? Well, it may take longer and cost more to transition to wind energy. It's been stymied by red tape, structural issues, and material and logistics costs. But wind energy seems to have a lot to offer. The question now is, is it all worth it? We are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Chris Bryant. He covers industrial companies in Europe. Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time with us. And in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you frame all of this with Siemens Energy's wind turbine project struggling with those um, abnormal vibrations that they found. But they only found it in about 4% of their fleet. Why is that a problem, this 4%? Very simply, um, if you do have a problem with a wind turbine, then repairing it can be extremely expensive. You've got to imagine this is hugely um, heavy equipment installed high above the ground. So the last thing you want is anything going wrong. And unfortunately, that's been the case here with um, uh, Siemens Energy's wind unit. Um, it forecast recently a 4.5 billion euro annual, annual loss. Now, to be clear, that's not all down to the fact that um, the, due to these um, problems with the, the, the onshore wind turbines, it's having other issues too, some of which you mentioned at the start, but it all adds up. And as I said, you know, a four and a half billion euro loss at a time when the world needs more uh, wind power and demand is actually very high is extraordinary. And it takes some explaining, I think, because I think many people outside uh, not familiar with the, with the companies in this sector would assume that they're all doing very well. But the, the opposite is the case. Well, let's talk about that, because in your column, you also talk about how this is can be laid at the doorstep of climate inaction. And now there's this rush to catch up. Bring us up to speed. What did you mean by that? Well, of course, you know, we've had enormous uh, steps forward um, in, in the wind industry over the last decade. And, and machinery has been getting larger and larger and more powerful. Uh, and that's a very good thing from the perspective of the climate. It means we can generate more uh, clean electricity and so forth. The problem has been, of course, there's intense competition to get this deployed in the field, intense competition to develop ever more powerful turbines. The danger is, of course, is in, in producing that technology that, you, you know, you cut corners, you rush too much, you brush problems under the carpet. That's what seems to happen at uh, Siemens Energy's uh, Gamesa wind unit, uh, where these problems have only sort of dripped out gradually. And they'll finally, hopefully, uh, acknowledge the full extent of them recently. And, of course, once that happens, uh, then, you know, fixing them, as we discussed, is, is very expensive. But, you know, this all resulted from the fact that the company was determined to produce the, you know, these very large, very powerful turbines. Of course, they bit off a little more than they could chew in this case. Some of the issues that you talk about in the column, uh, the red tape, the material costs, inflation impacting those costs, are those at all or entirely <laughs> impacted by the pandemic? Is this sort of a leftover residual effect of what we went through in 2020 and 2021? Or is there more to it than just that? 
Well, there's certainly the case that um, besides these these warranty repair issues that, that the wind turbine makers have been having, they've been hit by a really sort of perfect storm, if you'll excuse the pun, of of, uh, of problems in their supply chain, as you say. Uh, if you think about logistics, you know, if you produce a wind turbine, as I say, enormous blades of machinery, they have to be transported. You can imagine that suddenly the cost of delivering those that equipment got extremely expensive. And of course, yes, the components and 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 that make up a wind turbine, all of those went up in cost as well. And that created a bit of a problem because it's often the case that these companies have sort of fixed term uh, contracts that did not uh, adjust for inflation. And so they ended up having to deliver this equipment at what they promised. And of course, it wasn't as profitable then as it hoped and so forth. I think there's a lot a big learning curve that's happened there now. Lots of contracts being now rewritten to to allow for sort of inflation adjustment and so forth and uh, but the sad reality is of course therefore we had this you know for years a declining t- um, trend in the cost of 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 wind turbines uh the price is now having to go up again to to accommodate uh some of these um inflated costs we are talking with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Chris Bryant about an energy transition to wind power and some of the hiccups that we're finding along the way, more than just hiccups. Um, and Chris, the wind energy or the wind energy industry seems to have a lot to offer. There seems to be a lot of promise there. And as you said, there is a tremendous demand for these turbines. What's the hang up? Are these growing pains? We've never been here before and we're just learning as we go. Um, there is certainly an element of, of growing pains, and of course, there are, uh, this is always the case with um, large uh, projects of any kind. If you look at the nuclear power industry, for example, you know we've seen in in Europe, you know, companies trying to build uh, new nuclear power stations. The cost of those ends up going through the roof. Um, this simply is it is very hard to to do this kind of stuff, and 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 we can be proud, I think, in Europe and also in the United States with General Electric to have some very very um, you know, accomplished uh, wind companies. But unfortunately, as I say, they really have had a, a torrid time with, you know, conditions going against them and pricing not helping them also and some homemade mistakes as well. Uh, and particularly offshore now, we're seeing that the costs of offshore wind have gone up a lot. Projects there are being cancelled, which is, of course, again, the last thing you'd want to see at a time like this. I still think that, uh, you know, wind power has still got, you know, very rosy years ahead of it. Uh, nevertheless, to get from a stage where these com- some of these companies have not been making money uh, to one where they're making healthy profits is going to be difficult. It's going to take some time. Are there any best practices or any other lessons to be learned from Siemens for other manufacturers who are launching into this or getting into this or I already eyeball deep into it and they want to make sure that they do the best that they can and not make some of the same mistakes we've seen? Well, I think there's a couple of things to get on, uh, keep an eye on. One, um, as we've seen in so many industries, is the, the rising threat of Chinese competition. Um, Chinese wind market is a sort of an island to itself. In some instances, Chinese companies are dominating there. Uh, but they are starting to push overseas. And the fear, I think, is on the part of European wind manufacturers in particular, is that, that they'll see more competition, which, of course, wouldn't be helpful as they try to get their finances in the right order. 
The other thing I'd flag is, is permitting, and that's something that governments can help with. Um, wind projects, unfortunately, are, are constantly delayed and stymied by there's an element of nimbyism, an element of just huge amounts of paperwork required to get these, these projects up and, and launched. So, you know, it can take years. And of course, it's time that we don't have. Uh, there's efforts underway to simplify permitting, but I think a lot more improvements can be made there. Because even if the wind turbine manufacturers finally get their technical and cost problems under control, they still face this headwind from permitting at a time when we need to speed up, not slow down. Will this type of setback that we saw at Siemens and other in issues that are plaguing the industry, is that going to have a chilling effect on the future of this industry? I think it certainly made investors cautious, and it would not be helpful if the cost of capital of some of these companies starts to rise again. You've seen a massive sell-off in the Siemens Energy stock. You know, it lost billions of euros of market value. That isn't helpful if one day it needs to raise capital. Now, for now, it does not need to. But nevertheless, I think for now, uh, these wind cup companies is definitely under pressure to show investors, prove to investors that their technology is reliable and there aren't any more skeletons in the co uh, closet because I think, you know, there is a nervousness out there that more problems could emerge as these 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 turbines are installed and, and, and you know, particularly the new equipment. If that proves not to be the case, then I think there'll be a, a, a lot of relief out there. Uh, but yes, a lot to prove on the part of these companies. Thank you so much, Chris. Chris Bryant is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering industrial companies in Europe. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Yes. I know. Steppenwolf is singing here about motorcycles. This is from the movie Easy Rider. I know that. But it also seemed to be a good fit for talking about our next segment, muscle cars. Muscle cars, the Charger, the Mustang, the Camaro, the Pontiac GTO, they're retired, retiring, facing retirement. And it's not hard to see why starting with new emission standards back in the 1970s, plus the spike in the price of gasoline. But now... There's the electric vehicle. Is it possible to have a muscle car that is also electric? No one better to talk about this than Bobby Goshi. He is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering foreign affairs and joins me now. Bobby, is the era of the muscle car over? Well, certainly one era is over. Uh, people who follow this closely are calling it the second golden era uh, of muscle cars. You you alluded to the first, which was in the 60s and 70s, when you had these massive engines that made a great amount of noise and drank gas as if it was going out of fashion. Um, <laughs> and then emission standards uh, imposed in the 70s and the increase in prices of gas because of the, uh, the oil shock, the Arab embargo, remember? Mm -hmm. um, muscle cars went away. They came back in about 15 years ago when technology allowed for a new generation of muscle cars that were not as, uh, that met the emission standards of the time and were actually giving pretty decent mileage and at the same time preserving the things about muscle cars that we like, which is the noise, the, the roar of the engine, um, the sort of brute force of the of the uh, the big uh, V8, the speed, the torque. But again, emission standards have now risen again, and car companies are recognizing that 
no matter how hard they try, they simply are not going to be able to keep those cars on the road anymore. And so they are pulling away. Um, this year, by the end of this year, three great names in muscle car history, the Camaro, the Charger, and the Challenger, will all go out of production. Um, the gasoline versions. The companies are saying that they will introduce uh, EV versions in time, uh, but those are not expected to hit the market for at least another year, maybe longer. Okay, let's talk about those EV versions. Um, yeah. I, I I want you to go over again what makes a muscle car. You ticked off a few boxes, and yeah. let's compare and contrast if there is the possibility that an EV version could meet those standards? Is there something yeah. that the EV could offer that maybe a traditional combustion engine cannot do? Now, I know I just asked you a lot of questions in one quick yeah. little segment, but let's just start with the boxes that have to be ticked so that it is yeah. an actual muscle car. Yeah. So, what makes a muscle car? I mean, if you ask five people, you will get six opinions, but <laughs> generally, people will agree on a few things. One is that they got to be big. You know, they're not sleek sports cars uh, like the like the Italians make them, the, the Ferraris, uh, or even like Corvette. Uh, no, muscle cars have to be big, boxy, bulky. Um, they have to go fast. Uh, a Corvette? Wait, a Corvette's not a muscle car? No, Corvettes technically are sports cars. Really? There is a distinction. They're, oh. they're, Corvettes are not designed uh, in the same way as muscle cars are. Muscle cars are a lot cheaper. Corvettes are very expensive. Muscle cars are meant to be affordable to the average American. We can debate about whether that is true or not. <laughs> so muscle cars have to be big. They have to be fast. Um, they have to have a lot of torque, which means when you hit the gas, you should be pushed back in your in your seat uh, as a driver. Um, they have to make noise. That that is the key to a muscle car. The the, the rumble of that engine, the roar as you accelerate. Um, and then beyond that, the other definitions are are more technical. Uh, can you replicate all of that in an EV? Well, you can replicate some things. I mean, you could make a big boxy EV. Many of the EVs are big and boxy. Um, you can certainly deliver torque. In fact, um, electric vehicles have an advantage over uh, gasoline engines uh, in that respect. You know, when that that feeling, what what we ordinary sort of non-technical people call a fast pickup for a car, mm -hmm. EVs have a much faster pickup. They get off the blocks much faster than uh, gasoline uh, engines. Um, but they do not make any noise. That's the whole point of an EV. Um, and can you have a, a muscle car that doesn't make noise? Um, some companies are trying to figure out ways to introduce noise artificially. Um, there are two ways to do that. Either you introduce the noise inside the car so the driver can hear it. You do that by piping artificial noise through the uh, car stereo system. Or you create uh, Dodge particularly is, is working on this. They're, they're going to install a an exhaust now. Normal EVs don't need exhaust. They don't produce any gas, but they're going to introduce an exhaust with the car, which will make the noise, which means people outside the car uh, can hear the, the noise. But so, it is artificial noise. So it won't be air pollution as much as it'll be, no. I don't want to say noise pollution, because to many, the sound of yeah. a muscle car is a beautiful sound. But yeah. it'll be noise instead of a, uh, what? CO, a carbon monoxide. 
Correct. I mean, I, I have no problems calling it noise pollution, but as you say, it, it in, in the right circumstances, in the right context, that can be a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> but you will always know in an EV, even in an EV that makes noise, you will know that it's not real, that it's piped music, really, after a fashion. So will will drivers get over that is the question. And of course, then there's a bigger problem with all EVs, muscle or not, which is range. Uh, muscle cars or gasoline engine muscle cars can go as far as the tank, a full tank will take them, which is hundreds of miles. Whereas a, an EV, especially if you are sort of really sort of pushing your pedal to the metal, will not get you very far. I mean, the best case is a couple of hundred miles, but if you're really accelerating and really sort of hitting the the the, the tarmac, uh, you're lucky if you'll get a hundred miles uh, at that speed. I love how you call it a tarmac, like it's launching, like an airplane, <laughs> because it's kind of a, 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 a proper analogy. It strikes me that there is so much appeal of a muscle car that there are those who would seriously consider piping in the sound to make it feel more authentic or even creating an exhaust for just the sound, again, for the authenticity. What is the appeal? Bring bring me up to speed. Talk to me like I'm five. Why is this such a special thing? Well, if you were five, you'd be much closer to the appeal. <laughs> That's I, I suspect. true. You're absolutely uh, but, right. But what it is is, it's you know, it's the bad boy thing, right? It's the bad mm. boy or bad girl thing. We, there's always, there will always be a part of us that wants to rebel, that wants to push against the ordinary, and uh, with the passing of time, or regular sedan cars have become so boring. They they all look the same. They have the same performance stats. They have the same, give or take, more or less the same interior. They're all the same shape and they're dull. And walk into any grocery store parking lot, any workplace parking lot, go downstairs here at Bloomberg and look at the parking lot. It's all SUVs and they're yeah. all the same shape, code and color. Yeah. So there will always be a proportion of people who want to rebel against that. And the muscle car is is nothing if it's not an act of rebellion. Um, it, it signals that you are different, that you don't follow the rules. Uh, there will always be an appeal. Now, if you can afford it, you will buy an old one. You will you will restore the engine. Uh, you'll pay the high uh, insurance that comes with that because your passion uh, basically pushes you to do those things. Um, you know, until the end of this year, you'll still be able to buy a few muscle cars that are coming off the regular production line with the security of knowing it's a it's a new car, it'll last you a certain number of years, it comes with some warranties. Uh, that will go away in January of 2024 until the new EVs turn up. And then you have a question, uh, is that new EV uh, a muscle car? Now, we already know a little bit of what that might feel like. Mustang launched its first EV model but it's not even a car it's an suv mm. um and and you know purists uh, I, I count myself among them will argue that an ev is not a muscle car it, it may be a muscle ev someday if if you can imagine such a thing but it's not a muscle car and and it feels very strange to me to see that iconic mustang badge on a suburban vehicle it just it just feels very very strange Bloomberg Opinion columnist Bobby Ghosh also covers foreign affairs. Bloomberg Opinion continues with a bit of a puzzle. Economic trends are improving, but our economic anxiety is getting worse. This is Bloomberg.
You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. As America's economic trends are improving, our economic anxieties are actually getting worse. But this is more than just your typical middle to lower income family struggling to make ends meet. Higher income earners are also feeling financially stretched. Let's now bring in Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Schrager. She covers economics. She joins me now. Allison, you actually addressed this in your column. It's kind of hard to stir up sympathy for the very, very wealthy who are feeling a financial pinch. But you say there's a reason we need to pay attention to this particular demographic and what's going on. Yeah, I mean, they as much as, you know, it's hard to have sympathy for them, although, you know, I think we can all recognize ourselves in some of the bad financial choices they're making. We all we all do. Um, it, you know, they are legitimately stretched. I had I looked at some data from the survey of consumer finances, this Fed survey, and you do see sort of upper middle class people. You do see that their savings, particularly their liquid non-retirement savings, have been falling over the years, even when the stock market was way up. So they are they do have less money than they used to. And I think it's largely because of service things like service costs, things like cost of education, housing. You know, we should all worry about this. Maybe not as much as said as, you know, people were really, really struggling. But still, because this could have impacts for the wider macro economy, because we are very consumption based. And this is a growing demographic and they consume a lot. And they also cut back the most when uh, there's a recession, which can make them worse. Do you anticipate them cutting back to make up for these higher costs of services? Well, what we're we're seeing is they they have a much thinner financial cushion than they used to be. So if there's economic stress going on, if they're job loss or they just are worried about their jobs, then we're going to see them. They, they have a big part of their spending is discretionary spending, like the things we make fun of. It feels like a couple times a year we get these articles about someone who makes $500,000 a year and they lived in New York and we see this like list of their spending and we're supposed to feel bad for them and no one does. But a lot of those things on that list, you know, they'll drop once the economy turns. And if everyone does this at the same time, then we actually end up with a more volatile economy for everyone. Um, Is it just our human nature? We're so much more eager to spend and then save. I mean, I remember having it beaten into my head when I was a kid. You have to save so much per month so that you'll have something in case of a rainy day fund or in case of an emergency. But it doesn't seem like that's really the message that's getting out anymore. Or is it just not being heard? I think it's largely cultural. I mean, you were raised with those values, but, you know, Maybe they were raised by people who didn't make savings to priority. I said like the 25th percentile of wealth for people who make, I think it was between $150,000 and $300,000 a year is 30 grand, which is, you know, not bad. But like if you're making $300,000 a year and your entire like non-retirement assets are $30,000 and you lose a job or you have a divorce or you have a health event, that's actually not that much money. So I mean, I think people aren't making saving as much as a priority. And, you know, I think that's largely a cultural shift or just values. Yeah, the uh, child care costs are going up. uh, Fueling costs are going up. Mortgage rates, uh, rent and um, the the student loans are going to have to be paid back soon. And some Mm -hmm. of those folks who are making a half million dollars a year, they did have student loans in their back pocket. A lot of them. Actually, there's a high correlation with student loan balances and income. So uh, they, 
they're likely to as well have the bigger payments, which they're about to start up again. So how do we address this? What do we do? Well, I mean, you know, we'd like to have a cultural shift back to savings, but I think we could in the short term think more about tax policy. We could think about uh, taxes and um, high end consumption and maybe, you know, we one of the things that has lowered liquid saving is people are saving more for retirement, which is great. I mean, I think people were diverting more of their savings into retirement, which means they're in good shape for that, but also means it's coming across the liquid savings. Maybe we should have more tax preferences for uh, more liquid emergency savings, too. Thank you so much, Bloomberg Opinion columnist Allison Schrager. That does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.